0: Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients but big medicine. Today's discussion is with Dr. Natalie Nokoff, who's a pediatric endocrinologist and an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado and Children's Hospital Colorado. And she, amongst her many other amazing duties, specifically works with transgender patients. <laughs> So I wanted Natalie to come in today to, to talk about a subject that I often feel ill-equipped to deal with, and that is any of our patients that present and have a expressed gender identity that might be different from what their chromosomes are or exist anywhere along the spectrum that we might consider transgender. And and that can be whether they're presenting for a problem that has specifically to do with that or whether they uh, come in and there is something else. And so I wanted Natalie to kind of give us an overview of these patients and their specific needs in the emergency emergency room. So welcome, Natalie. I'm wondering maybe if up front you can give us an introduction in, to terminology or sort of how to think about these patients as a whole and, and ways that we may sometimes get the communication wrong.
1: Sure. So I'd like to start with a discussion of what the difference is between sex and gender. Um, so sex is really related to the body parts that you're born with, um, which typically fall into categories of male and female. And um, But sometimes don't fit into those categories so that includes folks who are intersex or have a difference or disorder of sex development um, which is very different from individuals who are transgender and we won't be touching on that population today then your gender identity is your own internal sense of being male female or somewhere else on that spectrum um, and may or may not align with your sex and the current terminology is sex assigned at birth Um, so If your gender identity is different or opposite from your sex assigned at birth, uh, we use the term transgender, and that comes from both chemistry and genetics, trans being things on different sides. There's another term, cisgender, things being on the same side, so that is when the gender identity aligns with the sex assigned at birth. And your own internal sense of being male, female, or having a gender identity that lies somewhere else on the spectrum may or may not align with how you express yourself to the world. So your gender expression is really you know, what's considered more culturally masculine or feminine and how, how you express that in relation to cultural norms are, around that. And of course, that changes over time, is very different in different parts of the world. There are other folks who feel like they don't—they don't have a gender or don't belong in a box. So that may be people who identify as agender or not having a gender. There may be folks who identify as gender fluid. Um, so a dynamic mix of male and female. Again, these terms are always changing. So maybe by the time this podcast is even aired, there will be some new terms out there that I don't know or recognize. Um, the teenagers that I see as a pediatric endocrinologist have new terms all the time that I'm not familiar with. Um, And a tip that I got from a psychologist that I work with is if you don't know what a term means, just ask, what does that mean to you? That's a really nice way of asking for clarification without sounding ignorant or offensive or intrusive.
0: Do we have any information on in the U.S. how many individuals identify as something other than cisgender?
1: Yes, we are starting to have that information. The best demographic data comes from a survey called the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, or BRFSS. In 2014 um, and 2015, they asked individuals, um, these are adults in the United States, if they identify as transgender. Um, And about a half a percent or one in 200 adults in the U.S. identify as transgender. There are not good um, U.S. nationwide surveys of youth. Um, Some Individuals, um, researchers have extrapolated from the adult data to estimate that the prevalence may be slightly higher in youth, about 0.7% rather than 0. 0.5, but there isn't really robust data in the young folk.
0: So 1 of 200 is really common, and that puts it in the same frequency as a lot of the other things that we see.
1: Yeah, as an endocrinologist, it's about the same prevalence as type 1 diabetes.
0: We're coming at this mostly from the the ER and urgent care, and and what kind of things do we need to know? So I'd like to start with the place where I have been involved as the first provider who is addressing a patient's desire to express a different gender than their sex assigned at birth. And in those patients, it's often been during a screening for some sort of self-harm behavior, or I happen to be the one that asked the question and it all sorts of tumbles out. So if I'm the first provider involved in that, what do I do? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, there is a fairly high rate of um, suicide attempts in individuals who identify as transgender in the United States. Um, There were some survey data from a while back in adults that showed um, a a suicide attempt rate of 41% among transgender adults in their lifetime. The prevalence rate in youth varies a lot by whether they're supported in their gender identity. So in young people who have been who have transitioned and are supported by their families, the rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide attempts in a few small studies really haven't been shown to be any different than age match controls or their siblings. But unfortunately for a lot of people, if you've been living for a long time and you don't feel like your identity um, matches your body. There's a disconnect between you know how you think about your gender identity and what is happening with your body, particularly around puberty when these changes start to happen. And you know, for a lot of the patients I see, it's like, "What the heck is happening to me? This is horrible. This is not who I am." Um, some folks, you know, can reach a breaking point, which unfortunately, you know, may land them in the emergency room with suicidal ideation or a suicide attempt. Um, in that scenario, I recommend, you know, you're very busy in the emergency room. You have a lot of patients to see. Um, if you have, you know, the time, there's not like a code or something else going on. Um, it's incredibly it will mean a lot to these these youth if you can just sit and hear them out and listen to them for a while. This may be the first time that they've told anybody or maybe the first time that they've told someone else other than a best friend, for example. So if you could have the time to sit and listen, I think that's very important. When a teenager shares something that's very personal or maybe the first time that they've shared it, I always thank them for sharing it, um, you know, and... If you want to ask more personal questions, ask permission before asking those more personal questions. In the moment, you're going to be a, a, no different from anybody else assessing their safety and getting them the care that they need. But It is helpful in a relatively timely fashion to have someone contact you know, your local transgender team or the providers that have experience with seeing transgender youth in your area to get them a follow-up appointment in clinic after they're discharged from the hospital or emergency room or, or inpatient psych unit.
0: Are there any resources that you can recommend for the patients specifically, especially if they they reveal this to you, but they themselves are not ready to tell their family as far as what they can do next or or a community for them?
1: I I think this is a bit on a case-by-case basis. I would always ask that young person, have you told anybody else in your life? Are you comfortable telling your parents? What do you think your parents' reaction will be? How much of this do you want to try to share with your parents today versus put off for another time? Um, I... I wouldn't automatically you know, tell anybody that information without the youth's consent. Remember that your gender identity and sexual orientation and gender expression are all confidential HIPAA-related uh, information, so that's not something that you can share without that person's permission. Um, and unfortunately for many youth, um, If you did share that information with their families or with their communities, that may actually put them at worse safety risk, right, you know, acutely. Um, And so, of course, you know, our job is to do no harm, and we absolutely don't want to put youth in an even more dangerous situation than they're already in in the moment. I I would follow their lead. They may want to use that opportunity to have you in the room and start to share some things with their parents. Um, If they're not ready for it, I would, I wouldn't push them, and I would wait for a team of people with more experience to help determine how that information should be shared on what timeline and with whom to make sure that that person's still safe.
0: Uh, so if the patient or the families are are asking for resources on, on um – any sort of medical treatment or um, counseling or, or even just connection to a community of people who express themselves the same? Is there a good um, resource that you know of or what do you mm. normally tell them as far as things they can go read or, or look at?
1: Yeah, I think um, there's a lot that exists at the local level, local LGBT organizations, local support groups, online support groups, Facebook groups. Etc. So I think some of that depends on what's available, you know, in each of your communities. For those people who are listening, there are some national organizations like Gender Spectrum um, that have some resources online. But again, everybody's gender identity and what they're looking for and what they're hoping for in terms of transition is is different. So I would try to first assess like where that youth is, what they need to change in their life in order to feel more comfortable in their, you know home, in their school, in their own skin, and then help connect them to the teams that can help with that process if transition for them is a part of that process. There's usually not any urgency in terms of like hormones or medications in that moment. The one thing that I consider relatively urgent on the order of, you know, maybe weeks or months is a young person who's starting to go through puberty, and that puberty is causing immense distress or dysphoria. And we do have puberty-blocking medications that are reversible that can be used to stop those pubertal changes, which we can get to later. That obviously would never be something you do in the emergency room, but... You could refer them to your local provider. So
0: I do, I do want to jump into that because while I'm not the one that's starting them, there, there may be patients that come see me who are, and I'm wondering about two different categories, one who are on medications to stop puberty. Mm-hmm. And then the second would be patients who are already post-pubertal who are then on some sort of hormone medication. Mm-hmm. And they aren't meds that I'm particularly familiar with, especially any sort of side effects or interactions with other medications. So what do we need to know
1: Sure. So there may be individuals who are on no medications who express their gender identity, you know, different from the sex assigned at birth. Um, and as an emergency medicine provider, I think the most important thing for you is to, one, check in about, you know, how that person wants to be referred to. Um, you can say, you know, what names you go by? What pronouns do you use? If there, if you need to assess, like, certain body parts. I'm pretty explicit about the reasons why I need to ask these questions. You know, is there any sort of like safety issue at hand? Um, And keep it focused on body parts, not identity. Like if someone you think needs a urine pregnancy test, I might say something like, our hospital requires that all folks of a certain age who have a uterus in their body get a urine pregnancy test before they undergo surgery or get a CT scan do you have does that include you like do you have a uterus and try to separate it from identity so we can maybe get into more safety issues around er and body parts because i think that comes into play
0: we do that first
1: Uh, Maybe let's loop back. Let's go through medicines and then loop back. So, in terms of those folks pursuing some medical management, for young people, there are a set of guidelines through the Endocrine Society as well as the World Professional Association for Transgender Health or WPATH standards of care um, that guide our practice as people who do this work. Um, For people who are starting puberty or early on in puberty, we may prescribe what's known as a puberty blocker, which is a gonadotropin-releasing hormone analog. Um, So that's the same medication that's used for precocious puberty or sometimes in adult cancers, um, like prostate cancer, for example, that when given continuously, you don't get any gonadotropin release, you don't get LH and FSH release, and then therefore don't get the testosterone or estradiol made by the testes or ovaries. So those folks who are on a puberty blocker, their body will be paused in the pubertal state or stage in which you started that medication. So if you started it in someone who had a male sex assigned at birth, that individual, the penis and testes will stay small, they won't get a deep voice or a beard, an Adam's apple, etc. If you started it in someone with a female sex assigned at birth, that person won't have any further chest or breast development, um, won't have menses. Um, Later in life, for those individuals on a puberty blocker um, into kind of the mid to later teenage years, um, we will discuss with them starting testosterone or estradiol to induce the secondary sex characteristics that align with their gender identity. And then we may also see older folks who've already completed a female or male puberty, did not have the opportunity to be on a puberty blocker, and will start testosterone or estradiol later in life. As far as estradiol for an emergency room physician, I would think that the main thing to know would be about the clot risk associated with estradiol. In the U.S., most Trans people are on 17 beta estradiol, which does have a lower clot risk than the ethinyl estradiol in birth control pills. Um, but certainly, if you have a patient who's smoking cigarettes, or you know, is it increased genetic risk of having blood clots, being on estrogen is still a risk factor for blood clots. So, when you're assessing medications and substance use, I would keep that in mind if you have suspicion for um, a DVT or PE. As far as testosterone. You know, still a lot has not been studied. We do see that their hematocrits tend to run a bit higher, especially where we practice here in the Mile High City and people's hematocrits are higher anyways. Um, Acutely, there's probably not all that much else to know. If someone is on estradiol or testosterone, just remember that certain lab values may be different. And if the patient's sex in the chart is still the sex at birth, that the norms that you're going to get are based on the sex, not based on the gender identity Um, So, for example, like if you, you know, draw a hematocrit in someone on testosterone, that will generally be flagged because it's based on the female norms, not the male norms, Um, and you'll just have to remember to right. And ideally,
0: you should be looking at the normals for somebody who you would expect to have had testosterone in their system, who might have been a, a, a male at birth.
1: Correct. Yeah.
0: All right, that makes sense. I actually had not thought about that at all. Are are there any things to be aware of with the GNRH analogs as far as side effects or or any interactions with other medications?
1: In general, nothing very acutely. to be aware of but know that you know that person's body is is paused in that early pubertal state so you may be you know seeing 15 year old who who looks like a 12 year old and that maybe you know is because they've been on that medication for three years for example
0: just one side effect that we forgot to talk about there are some case reports of gnrh analogs causing qt prolongation so it's something to be aware of and i'm going to break in here to say that our next discussion natalie and i didn't transition to very well But I wanted to talk with her about how do you approach the patient who has body parts that may not match what you traditionally would expect from their gender expression. So a person who outwardly expresses themselves as male but still has a uterus and ovaries. And how do you go about asking those questions if for some reason you need to do a medical test that involves those organs or you need to do a physical exam? And she has a very good approach to it.
1: If, if there's a reason why you need to assess what body parts they have, for example, you know, their internal reproductive structures or external genitalia, then explain to that individual, you know, why you need to ask those questions and keep it focused on the body parts and separate from identity. That body part may actually be a part of that complaint. For example, you may have a transgender guy who's on testosterone who still has a uterus who comes in with like a very heavy menses or or bleeding that needs to be controlled or stopped. And so then, of course, you need to assess that. Or you may have um, a transgender girl who's having blood in the urine or penile pain or, you know, urethral stricture or something else. So it may be a very acute complaint that you have to address. Um, Or it may not be an acute complaint, but you may have to assess something for safety, like around urine pregnancy tests um, before any imaging tests or surgery. Um, And then it may not be a big deal at all, and then you probably shouldn't really ask unless you need to, like they're coming in for a sore throat or an ear infection, for example. Um, And lastly, I would say, you know, for folks with a uterus, testosterone stops periods generally, but again, it's not birth control, and transgender men who still have a uterus, even if they're on testosterone, still can get pregnant. And so it's also important to, if there's any concern that that person should be pregnant or needs a pregnancy test as a safety measure, um, on the flip side, don't not order it out of respect. Um, You still need to assess this person's safety if it's indicated. Lastly, I would say, you know, that if people have really bad experiences in care, um, that they tend to avoid seeking care There are a lot of gender diverse and transgender folks who don't always get the care they need or don't seek out emergency medical care when they need it because of their own bad experiences or bad experiences of folks in the community. And it is really important to to make sure that you're being very respectful in all of your interactions, keeping safety in mind, and asking how things are going.
0: I just thought of this question related to our our previous discussion. So in a patient who still has a uterus and a vagina but is on Testosterone, who happens to still also be engaging in some sort of sexual behavior for which they can get pregnant. Can they be both on contraceptives and testosterone, or is there some risk or reason why those could not be provided together?
1: No, they definitely can be on both, and that's a great question. Um, again, just like everything, don't make any assumptions. Don't make assumptions based on their sexual orientation or what types of sex they're having based on their gender identity or expression. Um, Again, in my questions, I'm pretty straightforward. I ask about types of sex um, and who their partners are. Um, And yes, if someone is engaging in penile vaginal sex and is at risk of becoming pregnant, and I'm thinking about starting that individual on testosterone um, as their own endocrinologist, I am generally starting those folks on birth control, um, you know, concurrent with or prior to starting testosterone depending on when I'm seeing them um, so yes they absolutely can have an IUD and be on testosterone if they still have a uterus can be on Depo-Provera shots or have you know a, a explanon, Implanon implant and be on testosterone so those are not mutually exclusive um, and that's a great question.
0: I usually ask this question of any subspecialist that I get to talk to uh, because being in the emergency room, I am always less of an expert in their patients than they are, and I want to know what things you have happen with your patients when they're in the emergency room or in urgent care or when somebody else sees them that really make you cringe or things that you wish we knew to take care of your patients better.
1: I don't have much to say medically. I think mostly um, just... In terms of the social aspects, asking what name people go by, asking what pronouns they use, um, making that known within your electronic medical record or paper record system so that's that's consistent and documented somewhere and that, you know, all staff, your respiratory therapist, your tech, your nurse are are using the name and the pronouns that the patient uses. um, And that will go a long way.
0: Thanks for being here today.
1: All right. Thank you.